we were singing and I was thinking, oh, what a mystery it is that God's grace is given to me. I mean, I just want to be real honest. You're either not a believer because you don't understand the gospel or you're not where you should be in your walk currently if you don't sit back and say, what a mystery that God would show grace to me. Wow, that's profound. We get that example, I think, this morning in Scripture. And for me, I'm excited for this. Uh, This morning, the sermon, as I've studied, it's a real... It's a real simple point that we're making this morning, but it's so profound. And, and for me, I need it. I, I needed it. I, I just forget things, important things. I know, how many of you would say, I have a bad memory? Anybody? All right, look, that's like half the room. See, then there are people like me who I think are in a special category. Like, you know, the people that forget things that no one else forgets and just can't hold on to anything. This is me. I, I, I forget so many things and important things. And so I feel like so much of my life is trying to remind myself of things I should not forget. Some of them are simple, like when I was married. I shouldn't forget it. I need to constantly remind myself of this. This is important. Like there are things I just have to remind myself. I think this morning there is something, a big truth that I just needed to be reminded of in my own life, in my walk with the Lord. And so, so much of the way I now think about studying the Bible is related to our family discipleship plan because I'm constantly going through it with my daughter. And so I'm always thinking about big truths and Bible stories that hold up that big truth as an example. And so we have one of those this morning in our text. We have this big truth that I need to be reminded of, and you need to be reminded of, a a simple big truth that God can redeem the worst of us. God can redeem the worst of us. He can transform the most evil sinner into the most faithful saint. God can do this. God can redeem the broken. And listen, if you're here and you're coming in this morning and your life is just messy, I mean messy, and you are just at the realization that me, I am broken. I am it's just a mess that you are far from God, separated from his grace. I want you to be reminded that God can redeem you, that you are not too far gone, that no matter what, no matter who you are, no matter what you've said, no matter what you've done, you can be redeemed. What is broken can be fixed through Jesus. I want you to know that. And for me, the part that has worked on me this morning that is just so important, I think sometimes I've lost hope. 
Not if you ask me and you want me to give an objective answer, but in the day-to-day, sometimes I have lost hope that God is big enough to redeem some of the most precious lost people in my life. Family members, friends, co-workers. People I so deeply care about, but I know them. I see the brokenness in their life. I I recognize that there's nothing in them that is seeking the Lord. They're not searching for him. They're not pursuing him. They're not even questioning. As a matter of fact, some of them are anti his love. They're against him. They're actively waging war against him. And I, I think about it, and in my rationalization, Sometimes I just think I lose hope, and I want you to be reminded that if you're here and you've kind of lost hope, that that broken person in your life, that father, that mother, that spouse, that wayward child, listen, that friend, that coworker, I want you to know God can redeem them. He can. It can happen. I want you to be reminded of that. I want you to leave encouraged with that this morning. I want you to leave with a different sense and a different urgency and a different zeal in your prayer life and in your communication and proclamation of the gospel to that person. Because I want you to know that God can redeem the worst of us. That he can transform the worst sinner, into the most faithful saint. So Acts chapter 9, we come to a very familiar passage in Scripture, and we're just going to read through it and talk about it this morning, and in the very end, we've got four just quick kind of closing takeaways. But what I want you to see in the Bible story this morning as we read through Acts chapter 9, I call it a story because it's descriptive. It describes the conversion of a man named Saul. Saul will go on to change his name. He will become Paul, and Paul will be used as an apostle of Christ, and he will write much of what we read in our New Testament. Many scholars and many people would argue that Paul will go on to be what perhaps could arguably be the greatest Christian man of all time. Paul, we think of with this great reverence, We recognize his sacrifice for the proclamation of advancement of the gospel to the Gentiles. But before he was Paul, he was Saul. Before he was a faithful saint, he was among the worst of sinners. And this morning we get to hear his story and his conversion. So Acts chapter 9 verse 1. But but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, any Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. We were first introduced to Saul in Acts chapter 7 as he was overseeing the stoning and the murder of Stephen. 
See, with deep conviction, Saul felt he was ridding the world of a blasphemous sect of Judaism. Saul thought he was doing something that was right. In his mind, it was right. He had passion, he had conviction, but he did not have the truth. And what Paul thought he was doing to honor the Lord was in fact very, very evil. And so we see this this person who's overseeing the persecution of the church and guys you have to make this personal there aren't tons and tons of Christians understand that Stephen is someone's son what if Stephen were your son it was some Stephen somebody's friend these men and women that Paul that Saul is coming to arrest to bind and to take prisoner take them back to Jerusalem so that they can be sentenced this is someone's mom and dad see Saul is persecuting the church and if you were in the church then these are your friends these are your family members and think of how you would think of the person who might murder your son might imprison your parents, your siblings, your friends, because they believed in Jesus. Think of how evil you would see such a man. This is Saul. And this is how Saul is known. And so we see Saul, and not just as you know, his life is kind of messy and kind of broken. What I want you to see is Saul is one of the worst. He has waged war to kill Christians. He has sought to end Christianity as a whole. He has ignorantly waged war with Jesus. This is who he is. This is his character. This is his broken heart. This is his sin. Paul himself said of himself to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul said of himself, of whom I am the worst. This is an evil man. A deeply broken man. Verse 3, now when he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with them stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. 
And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. On the road to Damascus, Saul is going to have an encounter with Jesus. And it's going to change everything. Everything in his life is going to change as God reveals himself to this broken man. And in some ways, we're going to see that Saul's encounter with Jesus is much different than the normal encounter with Jesus. But in so many other ways, Saul's encounter with Jesus is just like ours or just like anyone else's. When Jesus reveals himself, Saul melts in fear. He, he falls to the ground. I mean, Saul is kind of a, a man's man. I mean, he's a tough guy. We know this from what we will learn about him later. And he falls to the ground and he recognizes. He, he calls the voice speaking to him. He says, who are you, Lord? He immediately gives reverence. He melts with fear, with reverence, with awe, brokenness. See, Saul's first revelation of who God is immediately makes him aware of his own sin. See, that's important. That's really important for us. See, we won't come to know Jesus if we will not come to know our sin. It, there's a, there's a, a, a statement I say a lot. It's, it's, it's a good tweet if you want to kind of keep that in mind. It, it's this idea that everything centers around who God is and who he has called us to be. I say that a lot. Who God is and who he has called us to be. Because everything ultimately goes back to who God is. But when I recognize who God is, it puts a mirror in front of me. And when the mirror hits me, standing in front of the righteousness and the holiness of God, I am immediately aware of my brokenness, my limitation, my sin. My need to be in the presence of God. See, Saul's first revelation is to drop to the ground in awe, in reverence, a brokenness. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? You know what, it's funny, Jesus doesn't say to, watch this, this is important. He doesn't say to Saul, Saul, it's okay, I love you. Feel good about yourself. That's not what he says. He says nothing along that line. He confronts his sin, a part of it. Why are you persecuting me? He doesn't make Saul feel good about himself. He exposes Saul's sin and his brokenness in light of him. I am God and you are against me. This is the beginning of the revelation of who God is in our life. It's the recognition that in my brokenness, my deep brokenness, I have need. So we see this immediately, immediately with Saul. 
See, every conversion begins with a fearful acknowledgement of one's own sin in the presence of a holy God. That's why Saul will go on and he'll write in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in chapter 5, verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. We're broken. We're broken. If you're here and your life is a mess, you're like everyone else. You're broken before God. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. We don't have any of those in Tennessee. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Our story shifts perspective and we pick up with this believer named Ananias. He understands the risk of being a Christian in his day and he recognizes Saul as a threat, as a persecutor of the church. And so Ananias is fearful but faithful. Listen, church, there's nothing wrong in and of itself with being fearful. The problem for us is when we just stay fearful. Some of us need to get from being fearful to fearful and faithful. And not just camp in the fearful category. When fearful, do what Ananias does. He talked to God. He went back to the Lord. He said, Lord, I hear what you're saying and I know you, I know, you know everything. I'm just a little afraid. This is a bad man, right? He, he, he's an evil dude. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Man, one word can be such a heavy command, go. You know, that's a command for all of us as believers. We're commanded to go with the gospel, and there's not an exception. It doesn't say go if it's safe, go if you're comfortable, go if you feel ready. If you have been reconciled, you have been given the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, if God has saved you, if he has shown you that marvelous grace that has transformed your life, you have been commissioned to go proclaim it to others. Go. Ananias is fearful. We get that. But the Lord is clear. Go. Ananias is fearful but faithful. Fearful but faithful. Another thing I want you to notice in this section is that Saul is communicated 
as a chosen instrument by the Lord. A chosen instrument, specifically to the Gentiles. By the way, this is before the gospel is even really mobilizing to the Gentiles. We'll see that in the next chapter in Acts chapter 10. So this is even a further profound statement for Ananias. I mean, this is, this is going somewhere. Listen, God is sovereign. There's no debate about this. We can wrestle with the nuance of human activity, but not the sovereignty of God. He is in control. One other just quick rabbit. Saul does not suffer as punishment for his evil lifestyle up to this point. That's not grace, that's not the gospel, that's not what's happening here. So Saul is going to suffer, but he's not suffering because of all the evil that he did in his past. He's not suffering because he has persecuted the church. Saul will suffer as a result and reward of being chosen to serve Jesus, to be in the family of God. Saul will suffer because of Jesus, not because of Saul. You hear me? Saul will suffer because of Jesus, not because of Saul. In Jesus, our suffering is always connected to our relationship with him. It is never pointless. He is constantly working it together for his good and the advancement of the gospel. It is not something that he just puts on us. Jesus himself, God himself, took on flesh and suffered. And suffered for us to the point of death. That we might know him. That we might be adopted into the family of God. Verse 17. So Ananias departed and he entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul... The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened for some days He was with the disciples at Damascus. A few more observations real quick. God knew Saul would be filled with the Holy Spirit before it happened. He did. He tells Ananias, this is what's going to happen. I I think that's interesting. Second thing I want you to see. Saul's response to the revelation of Jesus to saving faith in him. Saul was baptized. And one other thing to notice about that, before Saul is baptized, Ananias calls him a brother. Remember when Ananias shows up, this evil man, God has told him he's with me, what's Ananias show up and say? Brother. Those are great observations to put together in the text to understand how we respond in our activity to the revelation of God, the first step of obedience 
for the new believer is to give testimony to the world that the old self is dead and I am new and alive in Jesus. This is the profession of our faith. This is how we tell the world around us. It's an ordinance given to the church called baptism. But baptism in and of itself isn't what saves us. It is the grace of God through faith as we recognize Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior. The Lord of our life. And so, verse 20 And immediately he saw proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is it not this man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He was proving from the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled the promises of the Messiah. See, you can't know This is a profound statement. I I know it's a bold statement, but hear me. You can't know Jesus with saving faith and not proclaim him. You just can't. There is no evidence of a Christian like that anywhere in the New Testament. Not one. The Christians we read about in the New Testament, that the Bible affirms their saving faith, they proclaim, they proclaim Jesus. Saul, immediately transformed by the gospel, begins to proclaim Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He had spent years of his life preaching just the opposite. But one encounter with Jesus changed it all. It didn't matter what it cost him. It didn't matter if it was uncomfortable. Watch. He had placed saving faith. He had put everything into the fact that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And how can you believe such a thing? How can you believe that there is only one name unto salvation and that name is Jesus? How can you believe such a thing and not proclaim it? Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. An encounter with Jesus is worth everything, and it cost Saul his life as he knew it. Listen, Saul did not know any idea of a prosperity gospel. It was not, come to Jesus and my life's going to get easier. It's going to get more comfortable. It's going to get better. He knew none of that. 
Verse 26, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them on the road, he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and he disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Saul's transformation was met with skepticism. These are the disciples, the apostles, the believers. And what I want you to see here is there is some wisdom in healthy skepticism. There's just some wisdom there. But healthy skepticism must remain discerning. We cannot make up our mind and dig our heels in and say people cannot be changed by the gospel. That God cannot mature that person who has been immature that God cannot change us. It is fair to be skeptical, but it is unchristian-like in a low view of the Lord to look at a brother or a sister or a person out there and think, they can't change. And so, cautious is okay. A stiff arm to the work of God in someone's life is a lack of faith. And so what happened is testimony came to the disciples and the apostles. They embraced Saul for the fruit of transformation that was blooming in his life. Verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Multiplied. By the way, notice, just, just as a church, notice kind of the church growth strategy that's happening here. God's just at work. I mean, the church didn't get together and say, hey, we got to figure out a way to get this Saul guy on board. I mean, that was just the work of the Lord. And so I want to just remind you again that Saul's conversion story is encouraging to us because it reminds us of our big truth that God can redeem the worst of us. He can take a murderer, a persecutor, one who is ignorantly waging war against Jesus, and he can turn them into a faithful saint through his grace and his work. God can redeem the broken. And Saul's story of conversion shows us that and it shows us what saving faith man's activity looks like when God reveals himself and so listen there's room for debate again in the nuance of God's redemptive sovereignty and man's activity but church listen the Bible leaves no room no room to debate on the fact that God is sovereign in his redemptive work and that man is active. 
the nuance of how that works, at the end of the day, we sang it this morning. There's a little bit of mystery to some of that. But those two truths are present. God is sovereign in the redemptive work. It's his redemptive work. And man is active in it. And what I want you to see in some takeaways are just some signs of man's activity. How we respond to the revelation of God. Some things that we get to see here in Saul's conversion. First, I want you to see takeaway number one. Our brokenness isn't beyond God's redemptive power. Saul's evilness didn't put him down the organ donor list for a new heart in the kingdom of God. Did you catch that? The evil life, the brokenness of Saul didn't somehow number him and put him down the list for a new heart in the kingdom of God. In other words, he wasn't so broken, so evil, that he's down here just in the crumbs. The grace of God does not work that way. Saul's war against the church and Christ himself did not make him exempt. Here's the point. God had the power to save Saul. Saul was not somehow beyond the reach of God. See, some, I'm no, listen, you may be in this room and you may feel like you're beyond the reach of God. I want you to know that's not true. God has the power to redeem you from whatever your brokenness and whatever your sin nature may be. And then there are some, listen, that feel their family member their friend, beyond the reach of the power of God. I want you to know that is not true. And so what do we do when we encounter the redemptive power of God? Faithful activity would be to genuinely surrender. Saul, confronted with the power of Jesus, he surrendered. He didn't just fall to the ground. He acknowledged his lostness. Surrender is an activity, listen, that reflects oneself. It's not just about the person out there. You could surrender to anybody. Someone weak, someone strong. Surrender recognizes I am done. I am broken. I am finished. My life, it's a lie. I I, I can't do this anymore. That's surrender. That is the first faithful activity of man when confronted with his sin in light of a holy God. This isn't working. The second takeaway, our brokenness isn't beyond God's redemptive authority. Watch this. Saul wasn't looking for Jesus. He didn't earn it. He wasn't seeking for him. Saul wasn't trying harder. As a matter of fact, he was obviously doing the exact opposite. See, this is sin in our brokenness. We don't get to Jesus because we work at it. Some would have you believe that God is limited, that somehow he's handcuffed, that he lacks the authority to redeem. I want you to know that's just not the case. Saul did nothing, and yet God had the authority to reveal himself to Saul. Here's the point. God had the authority to save Saul. 
He had the authority to do it. He didn't need Saul's permission. He didn't need Saul to come seek him. He doesn't need Saul to somehow kind of earn it with his works. Jesus had the authority to reveal himself. See, listen, when we encounter the redemptive authority of God, what do we do? We don't just surrender, we submit. There's genuine submission. Saul, confronted with the authority of Jesus, submitted his life. Listen, the devil surrenders before the Lord. But he does not willingly submit. Saul submitted his will, his life, when recognizing Jesus was saving faith. Third, our brokenness isn't beyond God's redemptive love. Saul was not destroyed or enslaved. Saul was loved. God didn't bring him in as a slave because of the evil in his past, because he was broken. He didn't destroy him. He loved him. So many think God can't love them. You may be here and you think, God can't love me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I've said. Your brokenness is not beyond the love of God. Saul's brokenness is not beyond the love of God. God's love is greater than your hate. God's love is greater than our hate. Saul's hate for Jesus and his church could not put up a defense against the revelation of God. Saul didn't argue for a moment. Instead, his face hit the ground in an instant. Our hate is nothing compared to the love of God. No matter how broken you think you are, God's redemptive love is there for you. How do we respond to such a love with genuine sacrifice? Saul, confronted with the love of Jesus, sacrificed everything. He changed his whole life to love one, to worship one, because he knew in that moment everything, everything was about Jesus. Fourth, our brokenness isn't beyond God's redemptive purpose. Saul had made his purpose to be anti-Christ, against his church, anti his church. And yet God redeemed Saul for his purpose. Remember, Saul, a chosen instrument of mine, is what Jesus said of him. See, perhaps you have it all planned out, and I want you to know one encounter with Jesus will change it all. Saul had a plan but one encounter with Jesus changed everything because the redemptive work of God comes with purpose. It comes with a mission. And what does faithful activity look like in that? It's genuine suffering. I started to just talk about proclamation here when I was putting together our notes, but I want to say it a different way because in our culture, we think we don't proclaim if it's not comfortable. I want you to understand there is suffering in the proclamation, the proclamation of who Christ is. Go back to the Beatitudes and begin to read the Sermon on the Mount and realize as the progression goes through, when you proclaim peace, there's only peace found in one. When you proclaim peace, the next thing you get is persecution. I want you to see that there is genuine suffering. So Saul confronted with 
purpose found in Jesus suffered. He was met with skepticism and death threats and stoning and he was misunderstood and he was imprisoned and he was eventually martyred. And to the unbeliever, that's just, that's the view, all the loss. But in Christ Jesus, there is so much more. I want you to hear it from Paul's viewpoint. So I want to personalize Romans 8, what Paul will write in verse 14. But I'm going to personalize it for him as we read through it. Listen to verse 14. Led by the Spirit of God, I, Paul, that former evil, broken, sinful person, I am a son of God. For I did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but I have received the spirit of adoption as a son by whom I cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. And if a child, then an heir, and an heir of God, and a fellow heir with Christ. Now listen. Provided I suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Listen, that's not a declaration of our works that we bring to validate our salvation. That is the declaration of what saving faith looks like. Because Jesus and Jesus alone is what matters. And so in verse 18, listen to what he says. This is the why. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I'm going to ask the team to come on up, and we're going to close in a time of prayer. And as they make their way here, I want to largely speak to two people in the room, two two groups of people in the room. First, if you're here and you're coming in to this service, and somehow, by the sovereignty of God, you have found yourself in this room at this time, and you do not know Jesus. You don't know his redemptive work in your life. I want you to know you are not outside of his love. You are not so broken that you are beyond his reach, his power, or his authority. He, he can save you. He can redeem you. He can change your life forever. He can give you an eternal purpose. He can give you a joy that is beyond the circumstances of this world. Please don't leave this room. Please don't leave this place questioning whether God can save a person like you. He can. If he can save Saul, he can save you. In just a moment, you're going to have an opportunity, and I'm going to challenge you to do something. Right outside these doors, there's a couple of prayer rooms right here by the elevator, straight back, right behind our worship center. There's some people out there that would like to pray with you. They'd like to talk with you. If you're here, and you've never acknowledged that God loved you so much, that he sent his son to pay the penalty for your sin so that you could be adopted into the family of God right there where you're at. I pray that you would go before the Lord and you would cry out with saving faith and claim it as the truth that will forever change your life.
And in just a moment, you'd go talk to someone about it. You'd proclaim it. You'd pursue baptism. And you'd tell the world that the old self is dead. And behold, you are new in Jesus. That God had the power and the authority and the love to save you. The rest of us, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to pray. I have family. I have friends. And when I think about it, they just seem so far, so far away. There's nothing in them that makes me think, oh, they're close. And if I'm honest, sometimes it just feels like it's impossible. I want us as a church to go before the Lord this morning with faith with a trust in him that he is big enough to save that family member, to save that friend, to save that coworker, that our God is big enough to make a revival happen in a place like Eastman, that our God is that big that he can save my blank. And I'm going to ask you to go before the Lord and pray for a refreshed, a renewed spirit, a renewed passion for proclamation of the gospel to that person, trusting in him to do a work that only he can do. And I'm going to ask as we sing that that becomes your prayer. That God, will you do a work that only you can do in my Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you, you can redeem the most broken and transform them into the most faithful. Lord, as a church, I pray that you would give us a refreshed hope, a refreshed spirit, a deeper understanding of you and your power to transform lives. May we not think of our family, our friends, our coworkers as far away, but may we think of them as just a moment away. And may this week you stir in us a refreshed boldness to proclaim the gospel that could change their life forever, to trust in you, to do a redemptive work that only you could do. Lord, I pray that you would send us out as ambassadors with faith that you can save anyone. And Father, if there's someone here in this room who does not know you, I pray that in these moments, maybe for their first time in their life, like Saul, they will bow their face before you. They will talk to you and acknowledge you, our Savior and Lord of their life. Father, give them the boldness to proclaim it as they claim it. We love you. We trust you. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, the name of Jesus. Amen.